Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint. I want to welcome you to this installment in our series. It's our third installment in the series on Esther, a tale of faithfulness and courage. Inside your bulletin, you will find an outline entitled Esther, Xerxes, and Haman, and how God is in control. We're going to be talking about that today because the Bible teaches throughout that God is working behind the scenes in ways that are often very mysterious to us and ways we can not truly appreciate Oftentimes so we're late in life, and sometimes I believe we're not going to understand until we get to glory. And so uh, today we're going to, you'll find this really encouraging, especially if you've come here today and you've been going through some reversal of fortune or you've had some hard times. You're going, God, where are you in all this? And why is this taking so long? And why is this so hard? I think you're going to find an encouraging word today from the life and times of Esther. Would you have a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will indeed encourage us today, that you will speak, that you will move me out of the way. As we talk about Esther, Xerxes, and Haman, I pray that you will remind us, Lord, that you are in control and that you are working in our lives in ways that we may not perceive correctly or we we may not even perceive at all. And Lord, that you will give us trust, that you will help us trust you more. I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Hey, if you need a pen to fill in the blanks in your outline, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will be coming up and down the aisle, and they'll be glad to pass a pen to you. You want to take some notes on this, because this is a uh, very helpful, um, I believe there are some very helpful applications in the story uh, of Esther as we continue on. Esther is a book in the Old Testament. For those of you who are just joining us today, you haven't been with us. Let me kind of summarize where we've gone the first two weeks. Short story in the Old Testament, one of the two books in the Bible uh, named after women. The other is Ruth. Esther was a beauty queen. She was literally a queen who was beautiful. She was put into power as queen. She was the queen for King Xerxes, a king of Persia who lived roughly about 500 years before, who reigned roughly about 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Esther came to power because Xerxes, uh, who was the emperor in Persia, had, was planning an attack on the uh, Greeks, and he, the way he organized his nobles and got financing and troops and all the supplies he needed to carry on such a big campaign was he had a series of banquets that lasted for six months. At the end of the six-month period, when everybody was in high spirits and they were drunk and he pretty much secured all the supplies he needed to carry out this campaign against the Greeks, he ordered his queen, a woman named Vashti, to come and appear before him and his drunken friends. She said no, and when she said no... He got angry and said, you got to go. In fact, his advisors said, look, king, if you don't get that woman straight, there's going to be trouble throughout the whole empire. And if she won't come at your beck and call, then she can never see you again. And he signed it with his own signet ring. In the law of the Medes and the Persians, she could never come into his presence again. Well, when he sobered up, he realized that was a bad idea because he liked Vashti. And his advisors said, well, no problem, King. we got another idea. It's a show called The Bachelor. You need to watch this, okay? And so what happened was uh, he had a campaign. They had a campaign throughout the entire empire. They found the most beautiful women, brought them to the palace, and uh, Esther was selected to be the next queen. She was a young Jewish girl. And so she was in the palace And she was advised by her cousin, a man named Mordecai, who had watched over her when her parents had died. He became her guardian. And he gave her good counsel and advised her life. Well, five years later, a noble inside of the kingdom, inside of the Persian Empire, rose to power. His name was Haman. And 
Point one on your outline tells us what's going to happen here today. The Queen Esther held a banquet for King Xerxes and Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Haman was an enemy of the Jews. Mordecai worked in City Hall in the palace city of Susa. Under the, it's in one of the offices for the king. And when Haman came to power, the king ordered that everyone in the whole empire should bow down to Haman. But, so everybody did, except for one man, Mordecai, this cousin of Esther's. He was a Jew. He wasn't going to bow down to him. And we talked about last week because Haman uh, descended from a long line of people who were anti-Semitic and hated the Jews. And Mordecai wasn't about to show him any respect. And this got Haman so angry that he decided he wouldn't only deal with Mordecai, he would kill all the Jews. And so he went and paid a huge sum of money, a king's ransom, to Xerxes for permission to wipe out a people group. He didn't name the Jews by name, but to wipe out a certain group of people. And the king was strapped for cash, and he said, okay. And so an edict was written that on a certain date, the next year, in the springtime of the next year, all the Jews would be slaughtered. Well, Mordecai got a hold of the king's edict, which Haman had gotten him to sign again with his signet ring, law of the Medes and Persians, so it couldn't be changed. And he showed it to Esther, and he said, Esther, uh, this is a terrible problem, and you're going to have to go see the king. And Esther reminded Mordecai, look, I got into the service of the king by being a beauty queen. I can't go in with these kind of issues. If I just walk into the king's throne room uninvited... And he doesn't hold out his scepter to me. I mean, he can kill me. I could die. I mean, that's really one of the laws. It was, that was really one of the laws in the Persian court. And Mordecai said, well, Esther, if you don't go see her, go see him. We're all going to die. And so she said, all right. And Mordecai, you get all the Jews in the capital city here together. You fast and pray for me for three days. And um, then I'll go see the king. And if I perish, I perish. And that's where we left it last week. So, now we're back to point one. On the third day, this is from Esther chapter 5, on the third day of fasting, of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace. Please underline on the third day. What else happened on the third day? Hmm. Oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Um, no, on the third day is not only here, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, other places, something big is going to go down. When Moses and the Israelites were camped at the base of Mount Sinai, he told Moses, get the people ready. I'm going to give you the terms of the agreement, the Ten Commandments. I'm going to speak them to you. Get them ready. Because on the third day, I'm going to come and stand on top of the, foot of the, mount, on, on the, top of the mountain and you'll hear my voice. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. And so anytime you see an on the third day thing, something big is going to come down. So this is, this is going to get really good. Go, John, this sounds like literature class. Hurry on or else I'm going to fall asleep. Okay, here we go. So on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance, and when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter, held the gold, out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Okay, Esther was in her royal robes, and her royal knees were probably royally knocking the whole way across the floor, okay? Because if he doesn't welcome her, she's dead. He doesn't hold out the scepter, the guard behind him holds out the sword. And so um, she's able to approach. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? 
What is your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. And Esther replied, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet, and while they were drinking wine, um, that's when the king said to Esther, Now tell me what you really want. And Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, then please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for you, and then I'll explain what it's all about. So Esther, you're having a banquet to invite him to another banquet? I mean, come on, girl. Why are you stalling? Let's get on with this. Well, don't think she's wasting time. In fact, there's a note in your outline. Esther was more than just another pretty face. She was also wise. In the margin, if you could write the words tact or discretion. Esther had them all. Proverbs 2, discretion will protect you. Understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. Esther spent more than, she didn't just put on makeup and do her hair for three days while they were praying. She got busy. And she knew what she was going to do when she went to see the king. She had a plan. Remember I told you that Xerxes, when he was plotting his campaign against the Greeks, Greeks had this 180-day-long banquet. This king made decisions after feasting and drinking. And she was going to ask him to make a big decision and banqueting was the way to do it. He hold, held a series of them. She was going to hold a little mini-series. She, she had to walk a fine line here. I mean, Haman had come to the king to get permission to kill all the Jews. The king had been involved. And she needed to handle this diplomatically and use a lot of tact so that the duplicity and the wickedness behind Haman's actions could be exposed, but she wouldn't be coming across in such a way that the king would be angry at her and destroy her. Remember, I mean, her, she'd been replacing the previous queen who hadn't handled things well. And so tact is terribly important, as is discretion. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring and a pig's snout. That's Proverbs eleven twenty two. This describes a lot of the beautiful women in our culture. We have literally become superficial. And so you can have beautiful women. My goodness, they are stunning in their appearance. But the minute they open their mouths, you go, ooh. All sorts of vulgarity and profanity, talking about things they should never talk about. And it's just like, oh, now I know what that proverb means. And so for all the young women here, there's more to beauty on the outside. God wants you also to be beautiful on the inside. Esther was both. And there's a life application for you and me out of all this. If you need wisdom, then ask our generous God and he will give it to you. That's straight from James 1. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. That's what Esther had asked Mordecai to do. Mordecai, I'm going to go see the king. Fast and pray. Ask the people to give me wisdom, discretion, the right words to say at the right time in the right way. Because sometimes how you say things is just as important as what you say. Can anybody else verify that besides me? Oh, yeah. If you've been married, you know that's true. Okay, yeah. I know that when I, um, it's funny, since I moved down here, after I'd moved down here for a while, uh, after I'd lived down here for a while, I remember a, a guy came to see me once, and he'd been referenced to come see me. He had lived in Kansas and run a business there, and he was hired to take over a business down here where somebody had retired, and he was, he'd bought the business, and, or somebody had bought, purchased the business and hired him to manage it for him. And he'd come in, and some of these long-term employees who'd worked for this, his predecessor 
I mean, they'd been there 10, 12, 20 years, and he'd been there for two weeks, and some of them were quitting on him. He was going, I don't know what to do. And the guy who purchased the company that asked him to manage it, had sent, he said, I, he sent me to come see you. He said, go see John Schmidt. He'll tell you. And I went, okay. You know, and I said, well, and I said, why did he say that? He said, he said, well, you're from Kansas. You'd be able to explain to him what he's doing wrong. And I went, okay. This guy was from Kansas too. My wife discovered after we got married that the way people speak in Kansas and the way we speak down here are very different. In Kansas, people are known for being direct. And sometimes the point of being blunt and, um, wow, that was straight, okay. And this guy had done that. And he had come into this company, and I said, what did you do? And he said, well, these long-term employees, and it had all been kind of a mom-and-pop feel at the company. It had been a family kind of atmosphere. And he came in and brought in a real corporate mentality. He said, I'm going to take us to the next level. And he'd gone through this performance review. Here's what's good, and here's what's bad, and here are things you're going to need to change. And they said, see ya. And... He said, what did I do wrong? And I said, well, you need to remember a very important question. Write this down. He goes, okay. How's your mama and them? Okay, write that down. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, listen, people here in the South, as well as people in the North, by the way, care if you care, if you care about them. If you're just using them to get out a product, go get somebody else. But if you care about them as people, They'll work for you with every ounce of strength that they have. And you're going to need to learn to care about them first. And down here in the South, especially in that company, that's still prized here. So he went back and tried it. and he didn't, I'd encourage him to go buy him lunch, and sit down and apologize, and start over again. He actually won, I think of the employees that quit, he won, all but one of them came back. He said, well, I'm just telling him the truth. Sometimes the truth doesn't need to be said with a harsh tone, sometimes it doesn't even be said at all. Until you get to the place where you actually care about people. Well, Esther had to get things right in her life. And she had asked God, she'd asked the people of God to pray for wisdom, and God gave it. And so that's what's going on with the banquets here. So Esther was one smart cookie. She wasn't just another pretty face. Well, Haman left the banquet, and he was in all kinds of high spirits until he walked out, and there was Mordecai sitting at the gate. Everybody else bowed down. Mordecai didn't even get up. And point two tells us that Haman's bitterness toward Esther's cousin Mordecai consumed him and led to his downfall. This gets really interesting now. So Haman was a happy man when he left the banquet. Oh, Yeah. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and he went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. And he bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther has invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Sarah, and all of his friends suggested, why don't you set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall? In the morning, go ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. Well, this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. I want to make a couple of applications for you and me because this isn't just a story about a guy 500 years before Christ was born who struggled with bitterness. Bitterness can infect all of us. 
first application I make is this. We must not allow bitterness to corrupt us. I mean, this is a story from the Old Testament. Let me read you a verse from the New, from the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 15. Look after each other. This is written to Christians here. Look after each other so that none of you fa- fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Poisonous roots of bitterness can grow up in Christians' hearts too. How would it start? Well, in that paragraph we just read, Haman sat down, gathered his wife and his friends, and said, let me tell you about all my kids. Let me tell you about my great wealth. Let me tell you about my great honors. Let me tell you about my promotions. Let me tell you about my special relationship with the king and the queen. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And this is really good. But in spite of all that's going right, there's one guy who won't stand up for me, and that's going to ruin my life. And welcome to how bitterness can destroy you and me. Happens to people all around us. It could happen to you and me if we're not careful. 99 out of 100 things, 999 out of 1,000 things can be going great in our lives, but there's one thing going wrong, and boy, we're going to fixate on that. Sure, I got my health. Sure, I got a nice place to live. Sure, I like my car. Sure, I got good friends. Sure, 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 sure. But there's this coworker, and let me tell you about that guy. But you don't know my brother-in-law. I mean, you see how it goes. And then all of a sudden, everybody's going, oh, here we go again. So instead of focusing on all the things that are going right, I'm going to focus on the one thing that's going wrong. And we're warned here in this passage... This is for Christians here. Listen. Look after each other. And we promote connect groups all the time. Why do we promote connect groups? Well, first of all, then you'd have people to pray for you, like Esther was asking the people in Susa to pray for her when she needed wisdom. And you'd also have people who could hold you accountable. Say, hey, your attitude stinks. I need that in my life. So do you. Otherwise, it wouldn't say look after each other. We're supposed to look after each other. And if you don't have any Christian friends, you're not looking after each other. You're not. And nobody's looking after you. That's my shameless plug for connect groups. But anyway, we must not let bitterness consume, control our lives and corrupt us. If you flip your outline over, there's another live application I want to make right here too. We must not allow, allow pride to destroy us. I mean, you notice that Haman was boasting I mean, he was a big shot. They wanted everybody to know, his wife Zeresh, all of his friends. My goodness. And the one thing he couldn't handle was this one guy not bowing down to him. Proverbs sixteen eighteen from the Message Translation. It's an amplified translation. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. You may have heard it in another translation. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Same verse. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. We've got to watch out for this, and this is another reason we need friends in our lives. We can become prideful, and pride is terribly hard to see in myself. It's easy to see in you. I mean, if somebody says I'm prideful, it's like, I'm not prideful, I'm better than you. Okay? And the more prideful you are, the harder it is to see that you're prideful. And so I have to have people in my life who will tell me the truth. Are you prideful? Are you married? Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Or ask people in a connect group who love you. 
and say, hey, I got to know, here's my attitude on this. Is this wrong? Do you want to know the truth? Hmm. You and I need people in our lives like that. Pride can destroy us. Bitterness can consume us. And both were at work in Haman. He was a prideful, bitter man. And, oh my goodness, bitterness led him to the edge of the cliff and pride made him jump off. Mm. So he goes to bed after the banquet, content in his mind that early the next morning he's going to go to see the king. And he had selected a day the next year when all the Jews were going to be killed, but why wait till then? Let's get rid of Mordecai right now. So the next morning he went to bed plotting murder, and the next morning he was going to make sure it was carried out. Point three. Meanwhile, back at the palace... God providentially intervened to honor Mordecai and humiliate Haman. Haman is the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai is a Jew. Esther is a Jew. The Jews are God's people. And God is providentially working to protect them. Providence is God's foreseeing care and provision. God sees things we cannot see. And he is working behind the scenes of decisions that are made and circumstances in our lives. The Bible is big on this. And God asks us to trust him over and over again in Scripture. You can't see everything. I can. Please trust me. And you'll see in this next paragraph, this is one of the best paragraphs in the whole Bible, of how God is working. Well, that night, the king had trouble sleeping. Maybe Esther wasn't so good of a cook. We don't know. Okay, anyway, that night, the king had trouble sleeping. Or maybe she just had a lot of caffeine. I, I don't know. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so, he, so it could be read to him. What do you do when you can't sleep? You read. What would be an egomaniac's favorite book? Oh, yeah, a book on his reign. Let's read that. Okay. So it's a book on the history of his reign uh, so it could be read to him. And in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot to assassinate him, King Xerxes. Now, then he turns to the person reading and he goes, well, what reward or recognition do we ever give Mordecai for this? Five years earlier, when at, right after Esther had become queen, Mordecai had been sitting in city hall, overheard two of the king's assistants, personal assistants, plotting murder and assassination. And so Mordecai reported this to Esther and made sure that that was taken care of. And Esther took care of it, and so the king's life was spared. Well, nothing apparently had ever been done for this recognition. And this would be a serious breach of protocol to the king. I mean, this is the, these are the days. People weren't voted into kingship, okay, or to be the next emperor. You seized power by killing the guy in front of you. This, these are the days when they had wine tasters and food tasters who would sit at their table, eat a bite from their plate, and they'd all watch him for 10 minutes to see if he fell over dead. That was not a job with lots of job security. But this was that time. And so there were constant attempts on the king's life. He had security personnel around him 24-7. People were always watching out for him. And he had to be careful with the friends whom he trusted. And when somebody proved faithful to you, you lavished rewards on them. Because you wanted everybody to know, this is what the king does for people who watch his back. The two guys who had plotted the assassination, he had them impaled on poles. He killed them, their bodies were impaled on poles and hung out to rot in the sun so that people would see, oh yeah, this is what the king does to people who try to kill him. And so they're reading about this 
And he says, all of a sudden he discovers, wow, I mean, what was done for Mordecai? Nothing. Nothing's been done for him. So what's happened is he stayed up all night and he's been pondering about this and thinking about, well, how do I reward him now? I mean, this has been an outrageous lapse. How could this have ever fallen through the cracks? I need to do something really special for this guy. And the king likes to get advice from his nobles. And so here's the next The story goes on. He goes, who's that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole that he had prepared the night before. So Haman's coming in to see if he can get Mordecai executed. And the king is staying up all night trying to figure out how to reward Mordecai. This is all happening at the same time. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, Haman, Haman says, I got a request. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, Haman. But listen to this first. Um, What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself, well, now, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, well, if the king really wishes to honor someone, then he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and then let that official see that the man, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have that official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And the king goes, man, Haman. Thank you. Excellent. The king said to Haman, quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's like, I mean, you can imagine his jaw just hitting the floor. You're kidding me. Mm. Leave out nothing you've suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And what do you bet? It came out more like, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. I mean, one of the commentaries said that the words fell like gravel from Haman's mouth. He went there that morning to get Mordecai impaled He spent the day having him praised in exactly the way he wanted to be praised himself. And this is a stunning turn of events. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. And you know that's true, because a lot of people would have heard him talking. They knew all about the edict against the Jews. All of his friends knew how much he hated Mordecai, and now he's walking through the streets telling everybody to bow down to Mordecai, and they were laughing at him. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, the man you've humiliated, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. Boy, these guys are a lot of help, aren't they? Night before, yeah, put him on a pole, and then you can go out and go on your merry way. And the next day, oh, he's Jewish? Oh, yeah, you're toast. Yeah, sorry. Mm, bad idea. Hmm. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared, the second banquet. Oh, my goodness. So let's get this straight. So how would you say God is working this story? Well, it just so happened that after they left the banquet... Haman went home and was advised by his friends to set up the pole. Good idea. And it just so happened 
that that night the king couldn't sleep. Same thing. Two men leaving from the same banquet. One sets up the pole to kill Mordecai. The other can't sleep. And it just so happened that when he couldn't sleep, he had the chronicles of his reign read. And it just so happened they came to the part where Mordecai had spared his life. And it just so happened that Mordecai had somehow fallen through the cracks five years before. And the king's just like, he can't believe this. I mean, he never, ever fails to reward people. And so he didn't know what to do. And it just so happened when he's trying to figure out how to reward him, who shows up on the scene? Haman, who probably hasn't slept all night either because he can't wait to get rid of Mordecai. And the Bible says that's the way God works, in mysterious ways. Sometimes he uses mighty miracles, parts the Red Sea, sends down giant hailstones, sends an angel. And sometimes in Scripture he works through ordinary people and ordinary events, orchestrating things, things that you and I couldn't have figured out or recognized ever. And yet God had been working all along to protect his people. It's the invisible hand of providence. Now look, this is happening all the time. In fact, there's a life application for you and me on this. You and I need to pray rather than fret or worry because God's hand of providence is working in your life and mine too. Fret, by the way, what does fret mean? It means this. If you have lotion, you'll have really soft hands, okay? But it means this. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And if I don't have enough to worry about today, yeah, everything's fine today, but you know, tomorrow could all go off the rails. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And some of us are really good fretters. And some of us can worry ourselves sick. And the Bible says, please don't do that. I mean, Mordecai and Esther were protected in a way that neither of them could have organized. It was beyond anything they could have even thought of. David spoke about this. Psalm 37, 7. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. The Lord just laughs, for he sees their day of judgment coming. Their swords will stab their own hearts and their bows will be broken. God can do anything you know, Ephesians 3.20. For more, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams... He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. And this is why God asks us not to worry when things take longer than we thought, when relationships aren't going the way we thought. Come to me. Trust me. I'm working in your life in ways you can't imagine. You can't possibly imagine. I'm in control. In fact, that life application, I said we must, not, we must pray rather than fret or worry, and then it says God is in control. Would you say just that last phrase with me, please? God is in control. One more time. God is in control. That's the reason why we don't fret or worry. We go, look, I don't understand everything that's happening, but I've, laid, I've prayed about it. I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the part that I know. I'm just going to have to trust God for the results. John, you're telling me this stuff still happens? I'm telling you it happens all the time. I get emails from people and they go, they tell me how they met the Lord and it's one series of events that sounds so improbable, it sounds almost crazy, but they tell you, I, I promise you this is what happened. Some of you have heard me tell before, but I'll share it again today um, because my wife and I yesterday celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary. And people often ask me, 
Yeah, you can applaud her for that. That's great. Yeah, good job, Debbie. That's great. <laughs> I'm not letting her out of the deal. Okay, yeah, we're good. So um, what was funny was that uh, the way we met was very providential. People asked me, hey, how'd you meet? And I asked, you got four minutes? Because it's going to take that long to tell you. Um, we, we didn't know each other at all until I moved down here to Montgomery. And the way I got to Montgomery, to, to the Montgomery area, the way I got to Montgomery was really interesting. I grew up on a farm in Kansas, and I studied agricultural engineering at Kansas State University. I worked for my first job. I accepted a position with a company that had uh, offices all over the world. In fact, they came to Kansas State, where I got my degree, and they recruited young engineers who'd grown up on farms that, that really fit their system, and they said, we'd love to hire you, and if you come work for us, it's great, because we have offices in London and Tokyo and Paris and Singapore, all over the world. I went, oh, that sounds for me. I'm signing me up. So I signed up, and I said, where am I going? They said, Montgomery, Alabama. And um, just not what I had in mind. And uh, so all of a sudden, next thing you know, I'm packing up to go to Montgomery. I graduated in December. It was now the beginning of February, and February of 1985. And I'm on my way to move down here, and all of a sudden I check the weather, and there's a freak snowstorm or ice storm that is shut down all the roads in Tennessee and parts of Arkansas, and I was driving from Kansas down to Alabama, right through that area, and I called the highway patrol, and I said, yeah, you're not getting through here in the next three or four days. So you either got to wait till it's over, or the guy said, why don't you try this? Why don't you drive down to Dallas and then go over? Okay. I hadn't thought about that. I had a friend who lived in Dallas. So I called him. I called the office that I'd be working for and said, hey, I'm going to be a day later. I'm going to go through Dallas and then over, and they said, fine, no worries. So I call my friend in Dallas, and he says, you can spend the night with me. So I get to his place in Dallas, and there's a note on the door that says, John, sorry when I called you, I forgot. Um, I'm a volunteer for a ministry called Young Life. It's a ministry to high school kids. And we're meeting at such and such location, and I want you to come see this. I think you'd find it interesting. So I drove over, and there was a map there, and I drove out to the meeting, and he was involved with a bunch of kids there, and I couldn't talk to him, but there was an older guy sitting, it was in a high school gym, and there was an older guy sitting on the bleachers. And I said, well, I'll go talk to him. So I sat down and talked to him, and this guy was a regional director for Young Life who happened to be in town and wanted to see what this guy was doing too. So we struck up a conversation. And um, he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on my way to Montgomery, Alabama. He goes, oh, well, we have a Young Life office in Montgomery, and here's the card of the guy there. Here's a number in case you want to get to know somebody. I'm sure he'd be a good contact. Great. Put the card in my pocket. Next day, drove on to Montgomery. Got to Montgomery. Um, got something to eat. Went for a run. Got a workout. And I was already bored. Okay, I didn't know, you know, I'm 23, by myself, 1,000 miles from anybody I know. Anybody. And uh, I got a phone number from one guy, so I call him. He goes, oh, yeah, um, we're having a leaders meeting tonight. In fact, you're, you just happen to call at the right time. If you come on, you can meet some of the leaders. I'd love for you to show up. So gave me address to the house. I drove out to the house. And uh, when I get to the meeting, I'm sitting down there, and in through the door walks this stunning redhead, my wife. And I said, I'm going to marry her. And I did. <laughs> and I would tell you, so people ask me, how'd you meet your wife? Well, and so here's a, long, here's a short of it. I happened to take a job with a company in Minneapolis that happened to assign me to one of their offices in Montgomery, Alabama. When I, on the day that I was going to move, it happened, there happened to be an ice storm in Tennessee and Arkansas. So I, had to, I happened to change my plans to go through Dallas. I happened to call a friend of mine who lives in Dallas who said, yeah, you can spend the night with me. When I got to his place, he said, oh, I happen to forget that we have a meeting, a ministry meeting, and I want you to come check it out. So I went there. While I was there, the regional director happened to be in town at the same time 
and watching this meeting just like I was. And he happened to give me the card of a guy he happened to know in Montgomery. And when I got to Montgomery, I happened to call him on a night when there happened to be a leaders meeting. But other than that, nothing was coincidental at all, okay? And I would tell you, if you say, well, John, I mean, you know, that could all be coincidence. No, this is providence. I'd been praying for years for a godly woman to be my soulmate, and God brought me my wife. And what I'm trying to tell you, she'd been praying too. I'm not the only one. Some of you could stand up here and say, oh, no, I got a story just like that. That's how I got my job. That's how I came to Christ. That's how I met my spouse. Or you won't believe this. We got a treatment for my son who's been sick forever, and we couldn't get it diagnosed. But, but these are all the things that had to happen for us to meet the right doctor to get the cure. Seriously, can anybody else verify what I'm saying here? Yeah, there's hands going up all over the place. Providence. So God doesn't want us to fret. He wants us to pray. Philippians 4, we'll kind of wrap up with this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's already done. And then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I can have peace because God is protecting me. I can have peace because God orchestrated a series of events that no one could imagine to turn Haman's revenge plan right on its head. I can have peace because God is still working that way in my life and in your life. And if we will trust him, I don't have to figure out everything about the future. I just have to be faithful with the next step. And so do you. And some of you are going, well, John, but what happened with Esther and Haman and Mordecai? Well, if it pleases you, please come to the banquet that I've prepared next week, and I'll explain the whole thing, okay? I really will. Next Sunday morning, we'll wrap this all up. But the ending on this is absolute dynamite. And I just don't have time to get to it today. You're going to love this. I promise you, you're just not going to believe it. Let me have a word of prayer for us. We'll uh, pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I do not claim to understand all of your ways because, oh Lord, I'm not you. You are amazing. You are so far-seeing, and you are so powerful, and you are so wise. And Father, I have wasted so many hours in my life fretting and worrying over things over which I had no control anyway. And I don't know why I did that. Because when I read a story like this, it's pretty clear that Esther and Mordecai did the right thing. They prayed, and then they did the next step. And you took care of the rest. Lord, I want to be courageous like Esther. I want to pray, and then I want to do what you show me to do. But I don't want to spend my time wringing my hands and fretting. In a moment of silence right now, if you're here today and you fret and you worry about stuff, confess to the Lord and say, God, you know I've wasted too much time. But help me to trust you more and quit worrying so much. If you have a job concern or a relationship concern, a financial concern, a health concern, give it to God right now and say, God, please show me what to do. Esther prayed for wisdom. I want wisdom. Grant me favor like you granted her blessing.
Father, this morning we also want to learn from the wicked example of Haman. He was bitter and prideful, and those things consumed him. Father, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for times when we think that we're more than we really are. Forgive us for times when we fixate on the only one or two things wrong in our lives and don't even give you credit for the 999 things that are right. If the Lord spoke to you about bitterness or pride this morning, would you confess it to him and say, God, you know. Forgive me for my sins. And finally, Father, we just ask that you would indeed remind us to always seek wisdom intact, that you would give us the right words to say at the right time in the right way. If you have a difficult confrontation that you must make, if you have a hard discussion that you must have and it's coming, would you pray for tact and discretion? We thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. We thank you that your word guides us in all matters of faith and practice, in our prayer life, challenging us to discretion, reminding us to let go of bitterness and pride. Mm, your word is good. Thank you for being so good to us that we could hear it together. And God, I just pray that you'll help us find meaningful small groups where we can get together with other people who can hold us accountable. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.